is burning. Welcome to World is Burning, the podcast for your climate anxiety. I am Olivia. And I am Elise. And today we are going to be talking about colonization. We have still so many lasting problems stemming from colonization on land, on earth. So we are going to be talking about how some people are breezing right on by all those problems to mm-hmm. want to colonize the ocean and Mars. So is that a good idea? Does it matter if human beings aren't claiming that area? I don't know. Will all of our problems go away <laughs> if we just decide to fuck off either if to the just, ocean or to Mars? If we only move somewhere else, will things be better? So yeah, I'm I'm very excited to hear hear what you have to say because I don't know anything about it um, and I'm very excited to talk about Mars and space and all of that jazz so yes we can dive into it I guess yeah let's literally dive into it okay um, well let me set up also I'm I realized I'm talking about the ocean and ocean colonization for this episode uh-huh. I'm also at my parents house which is my childhood home and I've closed myself in on my closet. I had mm-hmm. a walk-in closet as a kid, small one, but not to brag. Um, <laughs> but I've never sat in here. I actually just realized okay. that there's a lock on the closet door, which is kind of weird. But it's huh. like painted this sort of sea foam. I always thought it was blue, but everyone says it's green. Okay. And like there's no airflow in here. What I'm trying to say is that I'm realizing I'm feeling a little bit claustrophobic. I see. This is appropriate for talking about like ocean cities yeah that's fair um so that's just an important concept so my sources for this were um a couple of videos articles and then like prototypes from a couple of different architects so um, my sources were design shimizu corporation the b1m bjarke ingles for ted he did a ted talk and the youtube channel unveiled plus a couple of other architects i'll just mention briefly within this story. Thinking about ocean colonization, I feel like it's a really fascinating topic for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just a cool concept that feeds my curiosity about the deep ocean and, like, being obsessed with knowing what it's like to be a sea creature. I don't know if you feel that, Elise. Yeah, no, I definitely, like, loved marine biology and things when I was mm-hmm. a kid. I remember, the, I think there was a book called Venus Among the Fishes. I think I sent it to you. And it's about, like, this kid who's, like, raised by dolphins or something. Or maybe, like, the dolphin, the dolphins are, like, brother and sister and one gets captured. And so, yeah, I, I definitely, like, was very into that stuff as a kid. Yeah, I feel like it's a common experience to just be really fascinated by that. So, like... I feel like that's also important to acknowledge, especially when looking at, you know, architectural mm-hmm. prototypes and ideas. There's like this core part of me that I feel like is just so thrilled by yeah. it, even if and like mermaids. And yeah. And just that. like magical things. And then also, yeah, like uh, vacation locations and like mm-hmm. uh, sorry, vacation destinations and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then on the flip side of that. I think this topic also raises a lot of important questions about like what we have a right to as humans and just the Mm -hmm. idea of colonization as a whole. Yeah. Um, 
which obviously if you listen to this podcast, you know that we talk about colonization as the root of a lot of our problems, European yes. colonization specifically, mm-hmm. but then like modern forms of colonization as well. Anyways, so that's just kind of the my preface, my long preface, I guess, for this story. Uh-huh. So I was first introduced to the concept of ocean cities I mean, really a couple months ago, I just came across the Japanese Ocean Spiral, which is proposed by the engineering firm Shimizu, Japanese engineering firm. And the concept is a fully self-sufficient underwater community. They would produce their own energy and food so you could live, work, eat, go out to bars and restaurants in the same massive building in the sea. So... Some of the architects will call them ocean scrapers, others call them water scrapers, others say sea scrapers, which I kind mm-hmm. of feel like once you hear sea scrapers, it's like sea spiracy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like sea scrapers is just the best term. So why would yeah. you use anything Don't, else? Yeah, exactly. There it is. Y'all know what that means, I feel like. Yes. And so this concept can be used for all different kinds of things, underwater hotels, research facilities, data centers, but also just like fully self-sustaining cities. Mm -hmm. Some of them um, float and then others are connected to the seafloor where where there will be like a research center at the bottom. Mm -hmm. The earliest kind of significant example of this that I could find, well, from the last few decades was in 2010, a Malaysian architect, Sarli Adre bin Sarkoum, proposed a floating building the size of the Empire State Building called the HO2 Scraper. And only a few of the levels would be above water, basically enough to, um, you know, have farms and like have people be able to to get up to the water and like have fresh air and everything, mm-hmm. but not enough that it would put off the balance of the entire structure. Mm-hmm. And that one would have been floating. It was just a you know, all of these have just been concepts. Yeah. So in the prototype photos, I sent you a couple of them and I'll put them yeah. on our social media and on our website because I just think they're so cool. And to be honest, I definitely got like down the rabbit hole of being almost like sold these concepts. Mm-hmm. And and also the amazing amount of work that's put into this by designers and like really forward thinking people, even yeah. if kind of like the core you know, impetus of it is not something that I feel like we necessarily need. So I'm going Uh to describe them to you as best I can and let me know, Elise, if I'm missing anything. Okay. So the ocean spiral sort of looks like an, I think it looks like the Epcot ball. It's like basically a globe at the top. And then Uh it's attached to a giant corkscrew that goes all the way down to the depths of the ocean. And then at the bottom, there is a research center that's very flat to the bottom of the ocean floor. Um, so that one is connected. And then like the Malaysian architects floating building and some others are more of like an ice cream cone shape. So there's like, you know, basic a basic cone shape with some of it coming out at the top and usually like very lush plants and the farms mm-hmm. on the top, but then also a couple of buildings and then kind of trickling down. And in some of those, they'll have these sort of jellyfish-like tentacles coming yeah. out. There's one that has like purple, I don't know, what would those be called? Like paws, it feels like, on the sides. And those are used to generate electricity. Okay, uh, I was wondering what that was. Yeah, but it's this very 
I don't know. It just looks so futuristic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're like these sort of purple orbs at the end. I don't know exactly how they would, in theory, work. But so the Japanese Ocean Spiral, which, again, is the one that has the research center at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, so the globe at the top is where most people would live. In theory, it could house okay. 5,000 people. Okay. The corkscrew spiral would generate energy through ocean thermal energy conversion, which is a process that takes advantage of the temperature difference between the cooler deep sea water and the warmer shallow sea water to drive a generator to produce electricity, which is super cool. Mm -hmm. A lot of these prototypes also involve underwater hydrophonic farms, which would provide food, and those can provide like a lot of food. Those are also Mm -hmm. available on land. Um, And then in addition to some models with the surface level farms. Um, It's interesting, too, like if you were thinking about how important green spaces are on land, I was sort of thinking about how, you know, hydrophonic farms are not necessarily for decoration. They would be like or they're not places that would be residential. So I feel like it would be quite important, especially if you're like truly floating out in the middle of nowhere at sea to have some semblance of green space. Yeah, it seems it, like it because it seems very cool. And from what you're saying, it seems like the, the top part is where of these things like that are the floating part above water would be mostly where people live. Mm-hmm. But then and then like the bottom part would be for like functional things or like energy making or research and stuff. So like that seems fine. But like it also just does seem a little bit depressing with like yeah. la- potential lack of green space and just like being so isolated yeah actually I was gonna ask you have you ever been on a cruise no because I mean they I and I don't really want to because it sounds bad like I know it's Mm -hmm. a fun time but like something about it I would rather do so many other things than to be on a cruise also it's like easy to get murdered I mean like (laughs) (laughs) it's not untrue also I really want to off topic but I really want to watch there's a Hulu documentary of course about the like cruise ship that was I mean it was like a horrific thing at the beginning of the pandemic I don't even know the whole story so I probably shouldn't have brought it up but mm, the one um, that, like tipped over uh something? something like that I mean just like the beginning of the pandemic but like having a bunch of people in a confined space that weren't mm. like following social distancing guidelines because they didn't really exist yet like just having something yeah yeah bad I mean I feel like that is like and I, I like mentioned that in mind too, but like, yeah, the idea of being like I- isolated in close quarters with other people being like, yeah, like a disease spreading, like amazing place for diseases to thrive. Yeah. Uh, is for sure a thing to think about. Yeah. yeah. Cruises seem like not a thing that I'd want to do. Like I'd rather yeah. do any other type of trip. That's just I never, me. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel the same way. And especially then knowing the environmental impact of cruises now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was something that appealed to me when I was younger. It's sort of in the yeah. same way that like the Disney World packaged, like comfortable contained environment. Yeah. All, I, I mean, I ate up ads for Carnival Cruises and Disney World in Atlantis, even if I never yeah. went to those places. Uh-huh. I just think that that's sort of interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. in comparison to this because this is kind of I mean this is where you would live but it also yeah. sort of like a giant cruise yeah so honestly everything about it seems super unappealing to me like I get why people <laughs> would like it or like be drawn to it but like 
to me, it just seems like a bad time. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, so, like, just going back a little bit to a lot of the sustainability aspects of some of these concepts, one of them was that drinking water could be produced by a process called reverse osmosis membrane desalin- desalination which mm-hmm. utilizes the high pressures naturally found in lower depths of the ocean to purify seawater, which I did not know that that was possible. Mm. I always thought that you couldn't desalinate. I mean, in, in, maybe it's just not in an economical way. But anyway, so that's mm-hmm. possible. That's something that they mention. Um, the Japanese spiral would take five years to build, and it would cost approximately $28 billion U.S. dollars Dang. to house 5,000 people and a research center. And then there's also a focus on renewable energy sources, like, again, being completely self-sustaining. So solar, wind, and wave energy, but also converted energy from compost food waste and human waste, too. So having, like, all of those Mm -hmm. options in the same place. Mm -hmm. And then some ideas also suggested harvesting algae or mollusks Mm -hmm. as a source of protein and then growing, you know, plants through those farms that I talked about before. Mm-hmm. There's a Belgian ecological architect who's known for designing futuristic eco districts, and he has a design for one model. It's called the lily pad. I think I sent you a photo of it, actually, so I'll put uh, it on the website. Okay. Um, well, let's see if you can guess which one it is based is on the, the name. Yeah, like the one with the white domes mm-hmm. that's sitting on top. Yeah. It yeah. Cool. It's like off the coast. I don't know why they chose a location because it hasn't actually been made but in theory this it's like kind of a series of these cities and this one would house um, 20,000 people off the coast of Rio de Janeiro and it would be 3D printed from algoplast which is a combination of algae and then would be with plastic from the great garbage patches Um, which I thought was like a really I never heard of algoplast before yeah and Bjarke Ingels who uh, like did a really interesting TED Talk, and in the comments, people kept calling him the Elon Musk of architecture, which is sort of a red flag to me because he, I, I'm to be honest, never heard of his architecture firm, but uh-huh. I get the impression from everything I've read about him since that he's like one of the foremost architects. He's a Danish architect and is very well known. Also has offices in New York, and for example, one of his larger projects that I don't believe started on schedule. It was supposed to start in late, I think, 2019. But was it's called the dry line, which would basically be, <laughs> like, going around Manhattan. And so providing, <laughs> instead of having a seawall that, like, completely cuts off Manhattan from the Hudson River and just from the water. Okay. Instead of having, like, a cutoff there, he had, I mean, he, like, just explained some of these really interesting concepts of using, like, hills that would block the highway sound for people without, and also provide green space while also, um, you know, providing a barrier for, for, like, for the city from rising sea levels. And a lot of different, like, architectural concepts that could be used as basically good for people socially and like encouraging interactions and community building and color and culture and all of those things while mm-hmm. also providing protect- protection from climate change. Yeah. But he also described this project called Urban Riggers, which was, um, it does actually exist. It was nine containers that are stacked in a port in Copenhagen. 
And so they they look like shipping containers. They're not very big and they're really just truly stacked on top of each other. So I imagine mm-hmm. it was a pretty economical project. It certainly was like one of the smallest scale projects that he was working on. And so those have like these gorgeous views of the water. You can open up your like you know, open mm-hmm. up your window and just like jump out into the ocean, which oh, wow. is cool. Um he said that 12 students live in those and all the heat comes from a thermal mass of the sea. And then the power comes from the sun via solar panels. So that's something that they're exploring building more. The TED Talk I watched was from 2019, and they had discussed building some in the Seine for the 2024 Paris Olympics. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like a lot of these and then floating cities on a smaller scale already exist, you know, just in ports and harbors and lakes Mm -hmm. all across the world. So when you think about the really big ocean cities that would float around, you know, the entire ocean and not be able to see anything else, there also are just like smaller versions of those things. And then Mm -hmm. also a lot of the sustainability measures and, you know, converting compost to to energy or like food, uh, human waste to energy, all of those different kinds of renewable energy are things that we should and can be trying Mm -hmm. on land like in the cities that already exist yeah so that's kind of the biggest I don't know the hardest thing to come to terms with on like looking at all of this and Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily okay I paraphrased um Bjarke Ingels basically what he said about sea levels rising he said that by 2050 90 percent of major cities will be dealing with rising seas basically unless we turn our act around right now Mm mm-hmm and that with sea levels rising, small island nations are already going to be displaced. And so if we want islands, he didn't say it in this exact way, but it was basically like, if we want islands, we're going to have to make them ourselves, mm. which, I mean, it. He, he's correct that like with the rate that we're going at, we're going to lose a lot of small island nations. But yeah. at the same but- time, I don't know if the solution to like the climate refugee crisis is. Yeah, because then like this. Are these islands for those people mm-hmm. and to like give them a place to say and like could this be a form of like climate reparations mm-hmm. or is it going to be for like rich people to hang out and when they're like, y- you know, fancy city gets right or for them to go on vacation. Yeah. Like who is this actually for? So, yeah, that's like a that's a good question. To yeah. And ask. when you look up underwater hotels that already exist or you know underwater rooms and a hotel that's otherwise on Mm -hmm. land they're always you know luxury rooms or luxury restaurants and stuff like that and it's cool and maybe it makes people feel more connected to the sea but at the same time like it disrupts ecosystems there's a lot of downsides and it's not something that's accessible to people or like you know helping the people from those coastal cities that are dealing with all of these problems Mm-hmm. Another interesting concept is the idea of deep sea mining, which is what some of those research centers are for, mm-hmm. is to extract um, natural resources, a lot of which have been untapped from the deep ocean floor. So like mm-hmm. rare earth metals, nickel, cobalt, and then, yeah, mining those and then selling them on land or using them on land. Um, something else, there was a U.S. geological survey. I found this in a, a Medium article by a woman named Ella Ananeva. She said that um, mining in international territories is not allowed, but the underwater hmm. city will be able to do this 
although this is a political issue which has to be solved. And I just saw that and I was like, wow, that is everything. When we talk about ecocide and international law uh-huh. and all these issues that we have, it's an interesting concept to think about Yeah, w- what that territory would look like. Yeah. And like, yeah, how, how would you deal with waste disposal, which I'm assuming there would be some of. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, that's that's crazy. And yeah. yeah, so much, so much to figure out, which doesn't mean it's impossible. Just like a lot. Yeah, it's just it's it's easy to think, oh, like we're going to do this and then that's going to solve all our problems. But in the in reality, a lot of the solutions that we would find on these ocean cities are problems that we also need to solve on land. And so mm-hmm. when like some of these people say, oh, well, the world is 70 percent ocean, we should explore the oceans before we explore Mars, for example, which you're going to talk about. Yeah. And that's true. Sure. But like, I also think if we're still thinking in like an extractive mindset, I don't think that solves most of our problems. No. Or no. any of our problems. No. <laughs> the the last thing, which I, I told you, I, I feel like what always happens is 10 minutes before we record, I find out something really interesting that I didn't even think to mm-hmm. look up. And so this is this was mine of this week. It was that Jacques Cousteau built this not underwater city, but kind of the I the beginnings of an underwater city. It was called the Con Shelf. C-O-N-S-H-E-L-F. I looked up I heard conch shell, so gotcha. I looked up Jacques Cousteau conch shell, and I, I found it. Nice. Um, but anyways, it was in the 1960s, and it was this sort of starfish-shaped, basically mm. an expanded submarine. And so okay. in 1963, six oceanauts lived in it for 30 days, and they mm. made a couple of versions of it. Um, another interesting part of it that, again, I wasn't able to look into, but was that those projects were partially funded by the French petrochemical industry, which wanted to, along with Cousteau, wanted to use this to like extract minerals or whatever they wanted, u- mm-hmm. use it basically to exploit the ocean. And so Cousteau himself eventually abandoned the project because of the mm-hmm. environmental impact. He eventually found them exploitative and chose to focus on conservation. Mm-hmm. So I don't really have a proper conclusion to this. I just have a couple of of risks that I put out, and I was going to put a successes and risks, but yeah, it's hard to know what the successes would be. You could do potential, yeah, potential successes, things that could be good, mm-hmm. maybe. Yes. So let's start with the risks, and we'll go to that. Okay. Um. So the major risks, which some of them we've already mentioned. One is the higher risk of ocean pollution, Um, so Mm -hmm. higher risks of disturbing the vast ocean cities that already exist, a.k.a. the ecosystems of the ocean. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, a malfunction could be horrific. It would be less horrific than on a Mars colony, but still not something that would be fun. And so there would be a lot of safety protocols that would need to be put into this, especially for larger networks of these that become tens of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Also, then corporate and national responsibility become tricky because, like we've already, like we said, already seen so many problems mm-hmm. with international law in ecocide cases and basically anything that has to do with climate responsibility. So you can only imagine how complicated it would be, especially, yeah, just looking at 
you know, if it's an international architect who's building it and then it's a floating city that goes from this place to this place and they're mining things along the way, mm-hmm. you know, who is responsible for that yeah. is an important question. Um, and then some important potentials of it, too. I think that imagining our future is really important. And I always hear, I forget who it says it or what the proper quote is, but like, Basically, that us in this moment, we even the best future that we can imagine is not the best future that exists. There's a lot Mm -hmm. more that could exist. So why not imagine this best future of this truly sustainable, futuristic, in some ways luxurious or just like happy community based city? Why not imagine that even if that's not what's going to come to fruition or what would not Mm -hmm. would be like attainable in this moment? So... Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that's really interesting to entertain. I almost wonder if the some of the like energy harvesting that is, I'm assuming, more sustainable than a lot of the other things we have today. Like if that's what we should focus on building Mm -hmm. and then maybe like having it be something people live on later. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting, but like yeah, I think there's a lot of those technologies that can be used on land and used to, like, I feel like there is a little bit of, like, oh, well, the islands are fucked, so, you know, there's no, like, and maybe they are, but, <laughs> but like, I don't know if it's good to just, like, move on to the next thing mm-hmm. before we have to. It's hard to say if it's fully good or fully bad. Yeah, and I don't think there's necessarily an answer to that. I think yeah. it's more just kind of all the complicated things that we've discussed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like how they're used. If it is just like research and learning and like let's just grow lettuce underwater, cool. But yeah, like the, if, if it's for like mining and stuff, like that seems like we should not do that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm curious. I think I want to hear about Mars and then maybe okay. we can just compare those. And I'm curious to yes. see where they fall in line with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think I think there are 100 percent overlaps. So, OK, I'll do it. And then and then we can compare and contrast. Uh, OK, so my sources are Business Insider, CNET, NASA, Futurism, BBC, USA Today and Slate. And so, yeah. Talking about Mars, can we colonize it? Should we colonize it? Does it even make sense to do that? You know, that that's the debate we're going to have. No. <laughs> no. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> so first, I just want to get Elon Musk out of the way because he's obviously a very loud voice when it comes to the idea of colonizing Mars. But I also think he kind of maybe gets too much credit because he is loud. And I was looking through Elon Musk's tweets about Mars, and he actually gave me a great way to dig into something that I super glossed over last week talking about grass. Mm. And I'll quote from the Virginia Scott Jenkins book that I read for last week. Uh, And she says, quote, scholars have found consistent use of land as women symbolism in the writings of white American men throughout American history in the idea that um, men have expressed themselves as sexual aggressors in a feminine landscape, which, like, I know that Elon Musk is uh, South African, but, like, he's in America now. So, um, and he's acting pretty American, in my opinion. But there's this very clear history of white men 
personifying the things that they want to like take, dominate, and exploit as either uh, feminine or as like a sex object. Hmm. And Elon Musk is no exception. So there's a Twitter exchange of Elon Musk flirting with a Twitter account that goes by Mars. And the Mars Twitter replied to a now deleted tweet saying, I don't want you, only Elon. And then Elon replies to that tweet with, I want you too, baby. And then Elon Mars, uh, or Elon Musk, (laughs) (laughs) Elon Musk tweets at the Mars account, uh, send me hot pics and I'll be right over, winky face emoji. Um, Gross. Uh, And then Mars. Like what what his sexting is like. Oh, man. Do not want to (laughs) know. Don't want to know. Uh, and then Mars replies with like a kissy face emoji and a picture of Mars and then Elon <laughs> replies with uh, like a sweaty like brow emoji with like thank goodness it's not November like election season I'm I'm uh, I'm assuming that he is not referring to election season that he is instead referring to no nut November oh Jesus <laughs> Oh, God. Um, My pure mind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, gross, but, you know, whatever. Uh, You know, not here to say anything about people who are into Mars. That's fine and cool. But either way, this idea of Elon treating Mars, like, very publicly as a sex object, even if it's for a silly meme does have like incredibly significant historical context just with like white men treating land and things to be explored and you know exploited you know as as women are a sex object Mm -hmm. and i think we can kind of read into that that like elon wants to dominate and colonize mars with a very like extractive mindset so that that i just thought was very interesting because like you know as soon as we get into space like we have the same mindset that like previous colonizers have had historically like over and over again so just something to keep in mind it's a little red flag that he's tweeting all over the internet that's so interesting Mm -hmm. i think the feminist concepts of of yeah colonization and just like climate change psychology is are so interesting Mm -hmm. so that's just like when you're just like wow that's all just like so obvious i guess uh in the way that he's acting like a, like that's just like another like colonizer box that he's checking mm-hmm. so like obviously and then just like another kind of funny thing is that elon tweeted a graphic on t- out on twitter that said occupy mars and this is what i texted you mm-hmm. uh, it says occupy mars but what looks what you would assume would be mars is actually a picture of the moon i was gonna <laughs> <And it's-> say <laughs> And it's, like, red. So I'm assuming it's some sort of, like, eclipse or something like that. But, like, it's a red, like, planetary body. But it's the moon. And so he tweeted out this thing that said Occupy Mars with a moon on it. I don't know. Like, I people kind of made fun of him for it. And, like, I'm assuming whoever made the graphic and, like, he was like, yeah, it's Mars. Uh, maybe it's a joke. But, like, I think that he just thought it was the moon. Or he thought it was the moon was Mars. That's also um, funny because I... I mean, I'm not going to say that I knew that before you very strongly implied it. Um, Yeah. But at the same time, I think if you looked at that for even a second, 
it is very recognizable. You're like, like the spots that are the moon and not yeah. the like sort of swirled <laughs> texture of Mars. Especially yeah. if you, I'm assuming you, yeah. Elon knows a lot more about Mars's surface than I do. And so and I would like, say. Kind of looks like the moon, doesn't yeah. it? So I don't know what that was about, but I do think it's kind of funny that he is like the loudest, arguably, voice on colonizing Mars. But he tweets this thing out that says Occupy Mars. It's mm-hmm. just not Mars at all. Um, so anyway. Exactly. Like I said, he's very loud in the let's colonize Mars space. And I really don't want to talk about him this entire time. So let's just Mm -hmm. end it there. Uh, And there's so much conversation outside of him that like we don't have to talk about him really. So let's just say for argument's sake, we were to colonize Mars. What steps would we need to take to do that? And I would like to thank BBC for laying out the steps because I don't know how to colonize Mars. (laughs) So the first step would be getting to Mars, which is pretty self-explanatory. And at this point, getting to Mars is most mostly an issue of engineering and obviously getting money for the project to do that. We've already sent things to Mars. We have rovers on Mars. We've done a little exploration already. So obviously, I'm not saying the engineering to get human beings to Mars is easy, but like with the technology that we already have, it's kind of only a matter of time before we figure out a way. But obviously, developing technology that would allow people to get up there would probably take tens of billions of dollars. And I said I wouldn't mention him again, but <laughs> there is a specific billionaire with ties to Emerald Mine ownership that uh, is interested in this project. So, like, the money it is there or will be there, you know, at some point if you give it enough time, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Aside from the, like, means of getting to Mars, physically getting a human being to Mars and, like, going on that trip would just completely suck. It takes nine, it would take like nine months. You're exposed to radiation, kind of cruise ship idea, but worse. Astronauts generally get sick easier during their space missions because there's Mm. so much stress and there's so much physical stress that you have to go through that like most astronauts like come back with like some sort of bug. So kind of sounds like a nightmare. Sounds like a bad time. So that's just another hurdle. Is there a way to make it more comfortable? Who's going to go? People want to go. It sounds like really bad, but like that's just me. Um, So yeah, it's also an incredibly, I mean, an incredible once in a lifetime experience. I can understand why people want to do it despite all the risks in the same way that people want to go to the moon. Yeah, I get it, but not for me. Yeah. Personally. Uh, Who says no? (laughs) I don't want to. So let's just say we have all the engineering work is worked out. We get the money. Second step would be to make Mars a self-sufficient settlement. Because you can send resources up to Mars from Earth for a bit, but in order for it to realistically work and to actually set up a colony there, you need to be able to make oxygen and to grow food. So Bill Nye has some thoughts on this. I love it. And <laughs> your uncle? Said, Just kidding. My 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 uncle. I wish uh, Bill Nye, my imaginary dad. Um, <laughs> he says, "I would love to go to space, you guys, but this idea of living on another world where we can't be outside just doesn't seem that appealing." On Mars, there's nothing to breathe. There's nothing to breathe, people. It's not just that. There's nothing to eat. There's nothing to breathe. So. You know, if you live in a dome and you go outside, you're going to put on a spacesuit 
and then you're in another dome, like my good friend Sandy the squirrel. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he he's not a fan. Uh, again, doesn't like even getting to Mars doesn't seem appealing to me. Living on Mars as it stands right now sounds like a bad time too. But you know, people are into it. So there's an idea called terraforming, which might make the surface of Mars a little bit more hospitable towards humans. So you could basically use satellites to reflect light from the sun down on Mars and heat it up, which would then get carbon dioxide moving around and like a bunch of chain reactions with the hopes of making it more like Earth um, and more livable. Hmm. The downsides of this are that no one knows how long it would take to make something like that work. Like it could be 100 years, could be thousands of years. Who is to say? We've never done it before. And then if that were to work, Mars doesn't have a magnetic field around it like Earth does. So like there's nothing holding an atmosphere in place, which like if Mars ever did have an atmosphere, it probably got bombarded by stuff and like knocked around and destroyed. So even if we were able to set up a like nicer atmosphere for us, it might not be a long term solution. So a lot of work for something that may not stick. Also, if that were to work, if there is any life on Mars, microbial or otherwise, that like that plan would pretty much then make the planet uninhabitable for them. Hmm. So there's just some moral dilemmas there as well. I have a dumb question. Mm-hmm. I realized I don't know. How big is Mars in comparison to the Earth? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I think it's a lot bigger, but I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. I don't know. I don't. I I'm think it's one that's face. like, yeah. No, I think it's one that's like ish the same size as Earth, <laughs> right? Like it's a little smaller, a little bigger. It's not like Jupiter or something that's like way mega bigger. Uh so I don't that's know. That's a little treat for our listeners with the power of Google. <laughs> yeah, you can figure out how big Mars is. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily incredibly important to be honest Mm -hmm. i just think that it's a different planet and that like there's maybe water there is the most important thing and that we can like physically get there like it's close enough for us with our technology to have already sent stuff there Mm -hmm. so like more than size it's the like proximity and the fact that there's like likely water either like on the ice caps or inside of it which like I don't even know if we know that for 100%. It's like, probably there's water. So there's a lot of probabilities mm-hmm. <laughs> with this whole Mars situation that seem to be like really skimmed over. You know, like people are like, there's most likely probably water, but like there could also not be. Right. Uh, or it like evaporated or got like knocked off into space or something like that. Um. So like a lot of maybes in this whole plan. So with the terraforming thing, uh, Perseverance, the Mars rover that landed last year, is going to conduct an electrolysis experiment to extract oxygen from carbon dioxide in the Martian atmosphere. So, like, that's kind of an experiment, like an oxygen-making experiment that could kind of, like, maybe eventually someday be the first step in terraforming Mars. Hmm. Uh, And then going on with being like self-sustaining for growing food uh you could potentially send robots up to mars first i keep saying up to mars i feel like that's not the right direction like out to mars Mm -hmm. 
So you could send robots out to Mars to like work with the soil chemistry to make it so that it's something that you could grow veggies in. And that could be done before humans get there. So maybe by the time humans got there, there could already be things planted and growing. Um, But again, you know, who knows? And then scientists recommend insects for protein because they take way less resources to grow, uh, you know, farm, Mm -hmm. I guess is the right word. So, you know, farming cows is probably not the best thing to do on Mars, but bugs? Yeah. Great. But yeah, even if all of that terraforming, making things more human-friendly, growing things, even if all of that were to be executed flawlessly, living on Mars would likely suck really, really bad for a good while. Were we to get there anytime soon with the you know technology that we have? The third step would be to make some sort of government. And this is definitely a tricky area as well. In a hostile environment where there's likely going to be very limited resources, it makes sense that you're going to need strong leadership. <laughs> and like I said, it's probably going to really suck. <laughs> so you're going to need someone to like keep morale up. It'd be freaking sorry to bring them up again, but no. Elon and Grimes is great 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 grandchildren are going to be like the kings and queens yeah oh god that's That's horrible to think too much to think about no thank you (laughs) um so astrobiologist charles cockle who is leading research in developing a constitution for space habitats says a space colony is a tyranny prone environment if somebody gets control of oxygen they could very well have control over the whole population and threaten dire consequences in return for extraordinary levels of power. Which, have you seen the movie Total Recall? I have not. Okay, I watched that recently, but like, great example of controlling oxygen. Uh, Big plot point of the movie is what happens, real or not, who's to say? But cool to watch. It's on Mars. So good example if you want to see how that could potentially play out. I'm guessing not peacefully (laughs) watch the movie find out okay uh uh (laughs) but basically while mars could be a really cool opportunity to like re-examine hierarchical structures and like what it means to be a society if we're like starting from scratch you know things could go south very very quickly um the fourth step of this colonization process would be to expand and build infrastructure. So this step might be where a lot of the terraforming happens um, and where more solid living spaces could be constructed. You know, this could be the time of, you know, spreading out, settling in, uh, making more permanent structures and using local resources to build the settlement or make new colonies in other places on Mars. So time of expansion and like using local resources to actually build permanent things. And then the fifth and final step would be to have kids and establish a culture. Because initially you could populate Mars with people from Earth, which I mean, you'd have to populate it with people from Earth. But to be a truly self-sustaining colony, people would need to have kids there. Wow. Yeah. And Some challenge to that would be you would need to start off with a big enough population to avoid incest. And anthropologist Cameron Smith says 2,000 people would probably be enough to do this, which, I mean, like, sounds pretty doable. But then 
The other challenge is that exposure to radiation on the trip and on Mars could potentially cause infertility. So, you know, whatever. But let's just say we figure out, you know, everything out, make everything work, learn how to set everything up, learn how to live, learn how to grow food, learn how to reproduce, yada, yada, yada. Should we do it? And, you know, I'm not I'm not 100% sure, but I think an interesting way of looking at it ties into the most recent rover Perseverance. So NASA decided to name the landing spot for this rover the Octavia E. Butler landing, which is very mm. interesting. And as you know, I haven't shut up for like the last five months about Parable of the Sower. I brought it back with um, me. Just so yay. You know. Ah, so excited. So... So, like, that'll be something to bring back up. But, like, so, yeah, I just think that it's really funny that she ties into this. But basically, at first, naming the landing site after Butler seems super fitting and good because, um, you know, she's such an important science fiction writer. But as the Slate article that I read pointed out, her books, Dawn and Kindred, which I have not yet read but are absolutely going on my list right this minute, are all about the moral quandaries of human domination and planetary colonization and basically how in colonizing space, we're likely to just kind of rehash the patterns of violence that we've already established here on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like how they say in the article, so I'm just going to say, uh, so they said to call the landing Octavia E. Butler landing is somewhat paradoxical. It might as well have been named Be Careful What You Wish For. So, like, very, okay, interesting, interesting name choice there. Mm -hmm. And Marina Corrin wrote about the Perseverance mission in The Atlantic as, uh, quote, reminiscent of an older way of doing science where naturalists and other explorers, welcomed or not, uh, traveled to faraway places to gather trunkfuls of specimens for closer study. So, in the Mars mission, like this current one, there does seem to be like an, a pattern of entitlement through science that we've seen be destructive in the past. That is exactly the kind of thing that Butler is wary of. But there are a couple quotes from the main character of Parable of the Sower, Lauren Olamina, that seem super relevant here. The first being space exploration and colonization are among the few things left over from the last century that can help us more than they hurt us. And that Lauren sees Mars as heaven in a way, but too nearby, too close within the reach of the people who've made such a hell of life here on Earth. So and she kind of like dreams of exploring even farther past Mars in this idea, which is maybe the best thing that we can do right now. So there's. There's this idea that for humans to survive really long term, we have to go past Mars because once the sun burns out, which is inevitable, the solar system is toast no matter like what planet you live on. doesn't matter, which is obviously like very, very far in the future. But like if we're thinking long term. Mm-hmm. So in a way, using up resources here on Earth to get to Mars, which we also like might not probably doesn't have like that many resources or you know, going to take a lot to figure out what is even there is kind of a short term, like it's short term thinking and not that visionary at all. 
That's so interesting because I feel like the arguments I've seen for Elon, again, sorry, mm-hmm. I keep bringing him up, but are that like... I was not going to mention him again and you're ruining it. No, it's, fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But like, mm-hmm. are the ideas that, okay, you know, his ideas might not be of our lifetime, but like that a couple hundred years from now, he'll be seen as a visionary. I feel like I hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. But then I like this concept that, mm-hmm. I mean, who knows? Obviously... I feel like the way the reason that argument sort of shuts me up at least is because I have no idea uh-huh. what the world's going to look like 300 years from now. I know that yeah. I won't be here, but like that's really yeah. all I can know. And yeah. I but then thinking even farther into the future that like I kind of in the same way that we think about like Christopher Columbus in a much mm-hmm. smaller way sort of I don't know what how he was perceived in his lifetime and then in the yeah. couple centuries afterwards has been lauded in a lot of ways and then that's been turning around as we've seen the repercussions uh-huh. of the history that um he was a part of yeah it mm-hmm. just it's like i don't know it, it brings up a lot yeah. of interesting concepts yeah so just like this idea that like we're stopping at mars like literally the closest planet that seems like it could potentially e- even after all i said about how we like absolutely awful terrible to live on it right now Mm -hmm. like you know we might not be able to thrive there like that's just like bare minimum gritty survival that's not humans thriving that that idea isn't like isn't a visionary one and that we need to like you know if we want to survive think even bigger dream even bigger which might be counterintuitive and you know with what we generally say But um, in a July 2019 Pew Research Center study, 63% of Americans said NASA's top priority should be using space to monitor key parts of Earth's climate system. And only 18% thought they should be prioritizing a crewed mission to Mars. NASA Deputy Administrator Lori Garver says that NASA should create a climate core in which scientists and engineers spend two years in local communities understanding the unique challenges they face, training local populations and connecting them with the data and science needed to support small local decision making, which, you know, I think there's a lot to navigate there and being respectful of what like communities actually want. But I think there's a really cool thought there. In Parable of the Sower, Lauren Olamina's immediate goal is to build a self-sustaining and caring community here on Earth while she dreams about what life could look like in outer space and on other planets. And I feel like what better way to learn how to make other planets hospitable for humans and learn how to develop the science needed to sustainably grow food and have clean, breathable air and have enough water and, you know, practice building caring communities than to do it here on Earth first. Uh, So, like, to me, it seems like depleting the Earth even further to use all those resources to maybe be able to hack it on Mars doesn't sound very smart, even though it sounds very, very exciting when it's, you know, told, ooh, going to space. Like, it's exciting. But like there is a possible future in which we can be space explorers going way farther uh, than Mars, farther than we can probably like dream of right now 
but still having an amazing earth to come back to and still, you know, Mm -hmm. having people be able to live here. And again, we can attain some of the technology needed to do that through developing the technology and practices we need to have a habitable earth today. So like there, this might be a situation where we can like have our cake and eat it too. It might mean that we don't make it to Mars as fast as possible, but it might mean that future generations can live on a beautiful earth, live on Mars, and live on who knows what like actually already habitable to us planet, you know, we find one day that, you know, is good right off the bat and doesn't just maybe possibly have water. We know it does. Mm-hmm. Um, so like my verdict on this is like immediate colonization of Mars is icky. Don't love that idea. But if through finding solutions to fix the climate crisis, we make space travel viable and comfortable and less about extraction and more about like cultivating and healing, that's the dream. Would it require a huge cultural shift? 100% yes. But that's good and necessary and like so exciting. Mm-hmm. That's like, what? That's so cool. So so yeah, just like the the technology needed to actually make life on another planet possible is a lot of what we need right now. And why not do it here? Uh, make people's lives better here and then bring it with us. Wow. So yeah, that's on colonizing Mars. <laughs> mic drop you you really said it all I I love that and I think that that's exactly the mindset that we need to have that also makes me feel hopeful because I feel like that cultural shift while it is very dramatic is absolutely something that can happen I mean if you just think about the Mm -hmm. social movements that are happening now and that have happened in the last I mean in human history but then especially Mm -hmm. like in the last hundred years 200 years it's mm-hmm. such vast shifts. So that is that feels so possible in a way that yeah. some of this other stuff doesn't feel possible. Yeah. And again, like like I said, like going to Mars would suck. Like <laughs> it would be not a good time. Like it would be really hard. I'm not saying, you know, you shouldn't do things because they're hard, but like it would be very unenjoyable. Yeah. Even though it's something that's sold as like very glamorous and forward thinking and like progress, it would just be like really shitty times, mm-hmm. most likely. But like, yeah, if you if you can make like amazing technology here and like empower communities and yeah, like f- funnel the money there, have NASA do research on Earth, you know, on how to live on another planet like Mm -hmm. that's so cool to me uh and just exciting and sounds like then everyone can have a better time people on earth people if you travel into space and again hopefully then you would be traveling into space like with knowledge to give should you meet other life forms um we're talking about aliens now (laughs) but like (laughs) but like like the knowledge of resources and how to cultivate things and you know, you're not going to like dominate and take like you would be going to give and like create life sustaining things. Yeah. Um, Which like seems like something we can do. But like all of a sudden we're really obsessed with doing it on Mars and not here. So. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, I just think that that's really, really cool and awesome. And I was really excited as I like was digging into this. I was like, wait, what? This is so cool. I love that. And um, yeah. Yeah, I think that like kind of covers everything. And also the whole concept of like why colonization as a concept is so problematic is because mm-hmm. of those those cultural ideas that that's what we have to change and not just the location of where are mm-hmm. we colonizing. Yeah. And like like same with the with the um the like island things or like sea colonies. Like mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that they're bad, but like can we bring some of that technology to islands? Can we give them some of those power sources? Is that like infrastructure that could then be transferred into like see things i would love to see that technology being used to help the people that would be displaced by rising sea levels Mm -hmm. or like could you 3d print on top of the island build it up i don't know like it just seems like there's so much like escapist thought and extractive thought yeah instead of instead of like like what we can save now or what we can build on now or develop more or help people so, yeah, and also it, like looking a little bit into a couple of these really visionary architects, it made me feel like okay, we have the solutions that we can use on land. We're just mm-hmm. not implementing them because it's less exciting or too complicated, or all the mm-hmm. all the levels of things. But if we shift our focus to that, I think there's a lot of change that we can make. Yeah. Yeah, and again, like everything is easier said than done. But like, if there's a technology, like why not use it to help people? The answer is money and capitalism. But <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Downward. It's fine. Capitalism. Okay, should we go into the dump? Sure. Do you have anything going on? I guess the main thing I have going on is that I have less going on, which I love. That's exciting. I've been watching. So there's a show. That I saw the first few episodes of probably like actually probably years ago when I was back at my parents' house a different time because it was mm. on TBS for a while. And I've it's okay. always been on my list to continue and I only just got around to it. It's Search Party. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've I've started I watched the first season and I have also recently started watching the second season. <sighs> okay, good. Cause I'm only, I think, five episodes into the second season and Okay. Yeah, that show is crazy. So I guess I had only seen the first few, but I won't mm-hmm. give any spoilers. But something yeah. very dramatic happens in the last episode of the first season. Mm-hmm. And it, it like, not in the ways that you expect. Actually, a couple of things happen. But it's yeah. a really interesting show that I actually looked at the Wikipedia after mm-hmm. and sort of saw the layout for the seasons, which I shouldn't have done. But because of that, I do know that, like, the dynamic or sort of the genre inspiration of the show doesn't completely change every season, but it sort of shifts every time. Okay. And, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's really funny. It has a lot of great actors in it. Aaliyah Shockett and John Early and the John Reynolds. Is that his name? I forget. But, like, a lot of really talented actors. Yeah. But, yeah, what do you think of it? I, I like it, and it's really cool. Like, it's one of those shows where I'm like, is this going to keep going? And then Mm -hmm. it does and it makes sense. But like, it's, I think, going to be one of those shows that like I watched the first season. I watched a couple episodes of the second season and I'll probably watch it here and there. But it's not like all the characters are just kind of cringy and bad. Mm -hmm. And like, 
I think it's a very funny dynamic, but it's something that I don't know if I can like watch straight through. I think I have to absorb it in small doses. I would say I wouldn't say they're bad, <laughs> but I would say I actually think they're really well done. Deeply flawed. But they're yes, deeply flawed. It's <laughs> they're not bad. Correct. They're just like deeply flawed. Yes. And like in a mo- mostly I think they're all like yeah, deeply fa- flawed in a very like unself-aware way. <laughs> Mm-hmm. which is it's, it's funny, but also is like, okay, I think I can watch a couple episodes of this at a time and then I need to take a break and then I'll come back to it because it is very good and then I'm going to take a break. Yeah, I'm feeling that more in the second season now because I'm also, mm-hmm. it feels like, yeah, it's building up to something else that might happen and every uh-huh. character feels like they're indulging their worst qualities. And yeah. so uh, partially that's really interesting to watch, but yeah. It was easier to binge the first season than I'm, I'm experiencing than the second. This is a little more stressful, mm-hmm. but I still really like it. And yeah, yeah, it's also just fun to have like another show that I've been wanting to watch for a while. And then I'm finally like getting back into. I don't know. I always find that really satisfying to just like dive into something. Uh huh. But yeah, not much else. What about you? I've I've been watching another another show uh, on HBO. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mayor of Easttown. OK, I am. So that one is really good. I th- I think the last episode just happened. Uh, I haven't checked like IMDb to see if there's another one coming out. But like it ended in a way that I think that it's the last episode. But there could be more. Mm-hmm. But like very good. Very cool. Fun to watch. Um, love like a small town mystery type situation. But that that was that's been fun to watch. And it's been nice to have. Uh, I love a show that like I watch as it comes out. Which I feel like is a rare experience mm-hmm. these days. Like, I feel like you're like, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to binge this and watch all the episodes back to back. But, like, I, I do really like the experience of waiting week to week mm-hmm. and, and, like, watching it over time. So, I've been really yeah enjoying that. I feel like HBO has stuck to that and it's done them well, especially with, like, mm-hmm. their documentary series. And um, what was that show with? Nicole Kidman. I mean, she's been in a couple of their shows. The was it the? It's not Big Little Lies. It's the other one. Is it the With the Hugh other Grant. one? Uh, we, we've talked Which, about that wait, show. Okay, it, it doesn't matter because it's already going to be on the tip of our tongues. But speaking of yeah. the other one, have you watched the other two? No. What is that? It's also on HBO. It is one of my favorite shows, and it, there's only one season right now. But they're putting out. Excuse me, I just swallowed incredibly loudly. <laughs> Um, there's a second season that's going to be coming out. It's about the two older siblings of like a Justin Bieber-esque 13-year-old pop star or teeny bopper mm. pop star. It is truly mm-hmm. one of the funniest shows. I make everyone watch it. I'm I'm surprised I haven't brought it up before. Okay. Um, Chris Kelly, okay. I'm pretty sure is his name, is like the showrunner who's like done a lot of incredible things and wrote for SNL, if I'm remembering correctly. Anyways, the show is fantastic. It's hilarious. Also, characters who kind of bring out the worst in each other. But uh-huh. it's like I the the younger sibling who's the pop star, he's in it, but he's not really the main character. It's really more about the older siblings. Okay. And so, but his career is skyrocketing in the background. And there's like a Scooter okay. Braun type manager. Mm. It's just great. So <laughs> that's my recommendation. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. I'll have, I'll have to watch that because I, I do think I'm like caught up on stuff and I do love watching just like, you know, having things on when I am 
researching things or mm-hmm. I don't I actually don't watch TV when I research for this show. I was gonna say <laughs> I respect but that, like, but I cannot if I'm looking up like restaurants to go to or yeah like you know just like whatever or doing depop things and whatnot I'm I like having a little thing on but yeah other than that I did have two people over the other day for dinner wow um and we we did like we ate outside because it was a really nice night but like it was weird being able to be like we're all vaccinated and it's okay to be inside together Mm -hmm. what so that was just like a very exciting crazy crazy time that i'm like this would normally be like a normal wednesday but instead it's crazy Mm -hmm. and what such a special occasion so so that was really fun that's awesome yay things you know not necessarily going back to normal, but like just human interaction. So yeah, nice. opening up slowly but surely. It's exciting. Yeah. I think we're allowed to be we're allowed to have a whole range of emotions about it. I think it brings out a lot yeah. of different things. There I don't think there's any way that you're supposed to feel, but I think it's also okay to feel joy and like excitement. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah, very excited. It was very nice. And yeah, I'm excited to do a little more of that. And like I'm getting coffee with uh, a friend from high school who is in Austin now oh, cool. on Saturday. Just like fun things. I'm like, I have humans. Yeah, humans. <laughs> so exciting. Which you, uh, by so, the way, well, you could do that on Mars in the early generations with maybe like a thousand people. But I, when you were saying, not to yeah. go back to the episode, but no, when you were good. just saying the concept of like you'd have to have 2,000 people for there to be no incest. Wow, sorry. Such a right turn subject wise. Yeah, no, it's but fine. I was, <laughs> I was just like, God, that means basically that you would have to mate with like whoever you're not related yeah. to, which yeah is horrific. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot. And I mean, like, hopefully there wouldn't be like obligatory mating that's <laughs> fucked up. Uh, I'm so sorry. You were Jesus like, I'm getting coffee Christ. with my friend. And I'm like, obligatory mating. <laughs> right back into it. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, I, I mean, it, it would be really like a lonely time and not like, yeah, it would start in a, like I said, it would be a bad time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, that there's a lot to navigate there. And like, <laughs> would people go up with significant others? Like, obviously, like, it would not, you would not have to have a child, but just like the possibility of having a child between 2,000 people would make it not bad. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that is something to think about. (laughs) It sounds like quarantine or you're going to rocket yourself. Yeah. Or there's some progressively vibes also with the infertility. No. All right. Let's not get down. That's a different rabbit hole. Whatever. Anyway, we can see people now. <laughs> Go out in the world, enjoy the earth that we live on, that we can live on without living in a dome. Mm-hmm. We can look at the sky, breathe fresh air, you know, depending, might be a little bit polluted, but but you can for still the most part, it. you can breathe. You can breathe. And it's lovely. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, that's all I've got if Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm all good. Do you want to do socials? Sure. So you can find us on our website. We have our extended show notes, worldisburning.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at worldisburning with no G. We've been having a lot of fun. Well, what is our today on anti-Chevron day? (laughs) But every day is anti-Chevron day. So if you're listening to this afterwards and you didn't know, 
go leave a weird comment or not a weird one, a mean comment. It can a be weird. Trolly comment. Yeah, it definitely can be weird, actually. Uh, on Chevron or any fossil fuel company or I don't know if Monsanto has social media. We should probably look into that. Ooh. Anyways, endless pro- possibilities of green <laughs> trolling. Or you can follow us and we'll do it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, at World's Burning. We're also on TikTok, at World's Burning with a G. Please give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're still listening. Five-star review would go so far for us. We would love that. Um, you can email us, worldsburningpod at gmail.com. And I think that's everything. Yeah. We'll see you next Wednesday. See you next Wednesday. <laughs>